Welcome into the Boston Sports Summit. I am your host, Tim Barnett, where on this show, I'm telling you, the Boston Sports Summit is just a typical Boston guy talking about the teams that he loves, right? I, once again, I'm Tim, and we got a jam-packed show for you tonight. We have the Patriots, and honestly, I'm afraid that we are in a war for the soul of our sports. And with the new coaching changes with Gerard Mayo, I'm afraid the Pats could be next and fall in that war. So we'll stay tuned for that. That's going to come up first. Second, later on, I'm going to talk about the uh, Celtics. And they're the team to beat. There's no two ways about it. They're the team to beat. But – seem to be falling into some old habits as of late, and it doesn't look good for them. It doesn't look good. Not to say that they're, you know, just the hopes. doesn't look good. Following that, the Bruins, they're in an all-star break. Uh, they killed the Flyers on Monday, and everything is looking good. Very excited. Actually, nope, sorry, Sunday. <laughs> they're, they're looking good at the all-star break. And then finally – we have, between Ken Rosenthal's comments and Fenway Sports Group and the PGA Tour, what can the Red Sox do to earn back my trust? Okay, I don't know if they have lost your trust, but I'm telling you, they've lost mine. And I'm going to let you know later in the show how they can earn my trust back. So kicking off the show, I want to talk about the war that is going on in sports. And it's starting off with the NFC Championship game because that was just a nightmare for Detroit on a number of reasons. And the first, the, the biggest reason that I, I found with it was something that I touched on last week. Didn't touch on it for long, but I touched on it enough, thinking that, you know, baseball and basketball were really the only ones affected. Baseball has been totally consumed by it, whereas basketball, it's getting there. It's getting to that point. I didn't think football was going to be consumed or taken part because there's really been no instance of it yet. But nerds and analytics in sports are starting to creep in to football. America's favorite, uh, America's game, football. Nerds are starting to invade. And let me get into that because there were two situations where this blew up, okay? It started with fourth and two from the plus 28. For those of you, the plus 28 is San Francisco's 28-yard line. So they had 28 yards to go before they could score a touchdown. With seven minutes in 40 seconds remaining on the clock in the third quarter, up 14 points. Okay, so it's fourth and two. Now, according to the two articles that I found, um, you have the next one of them by Ben Slowick talks about it from the ringer, talks about the next gen stats, and they say the next gen stats. You have an 86.8% chance to win if you go for it, okay? If you kick it, 
and you go up three scores, you have an 85.8% chance of winning. And so what happened? They went for it, and Reynolds was relatively open, but he he dropped the pass, and it was a turnover on downs. The second point, or the second yeah area that this was a big thing was it was fourth and three from San Francisco's 30-yard line for Detroit. It was a plus 30. With seven and a half remaining in the game, and this time Detroit is down three. So they were up 21, but now find themselves down three points. And the next-gen sats had to say for this that if you go for it, Detroit has a 32.7% chance of winning. And if they kicked it, Detroit has a 30.2% chance of winning. So what happened? Well, they went for it. Dan Campbell is rah-rah Dan, big fan, big fan fan of Dan Campbell. But they went for it, and Goff got flushed out to his right and underthrew his receiver for a second turnover on downs. So I I wanted to let you know, and in case you didn't watch the NFC Championship game, because let's face it, you know, NFC, New England Pats are in the AFC. They're not in it. You know, that's if you didn't watch it, that's fine. Those are the two moments, okay? So in that first article by Ben Slowick from The Ringer, he talks about how those are the stats, okay? And with it, with you being up 14 points, and if you went for it, again, didn't even say that you would get it. It just says if you go for it, you would win 86.8% of the time versus if you kick it and go up three scores, then you win, you'll win 85.8% chance of the time. So when I read that, I thought to myself, you cost your team over 1%. 1% was the number that you were like, yep, we, we have to go for it. It just absolutely Makes all the sense in the world. And, and then, of course, you don't get it. You you went for it. You don't get it. You demoralize your team. And you know how I know that the team got demoralized? Because two plays later, the Niners come up with this miraculous catch. Detroit's defensive back boxed out Brandon Ayuk. Had the ball right here. The problem was... His hands were like this, and the ball is like this. So what happens? The ball comes in, doink, hits off his helmet, bounces right to Ayuk, and somehow he comes up with a miraculous play. So a miraculous play, uh, doink off the helmet of a Detroit defensive back, and there you go. Two plays later, after the turnover on downs, now, you're not telling me you, – you mean to tell me that the turnover on downs, the going for it, being up 14 points, two scores, 
rather than being up 17 and three scores might have had a difference? Yeah. Because then on the very first play of the Lions' next drive, Jameer Gibbs fumbles and gives it back to, uh, to San Fran. The Niners scored 21 unanswered. And then when they had that three-point lead, that second fourth down uh, attempt occurred. So they were – Detroit was winning. They had a 17-point lead. Then it was cut to 14. And they had the opportunity to go back up three scores. All right? That is called momentum. For those of you who've never heard it, don't watch sports, don't care about it, that what happened is called a momentum swing. And I followed sports my whole life. I, I know all about momentum. But the problem is the nerds, the analytics, they don't like it. Because momentum is it, it's unquantifiable. Clutchness is unquantifiable, right? Because in that article, he's, you know, this is the reason why I, I say that they don't like momentum. Because in that article, they go, quote, but you have to recover. Dumb things happen. Welcome to the league. Really? Dumb things happen? Why do you think dumb things happen? Why do you think certain things go a certain way? Why did David Tyree catch that ball off his helmet? Why did Eli Manning, that's you know, that same play, not get sacked after being grabbed several times? And those defensive linemen being held. The play before it, Asante Samuel let a let a ball go through his hand. Momentum. Like I said, they don't like to talk about it because it's it's not quantifiable. You can't put it into a calculator. David Ortiz was the greatest clutch hitter to ever play baseball. But all the analytics say was that he was lucky that those moments in being clutch don't, don't matter. It was all luck, which is asinine. There is a psychological aspect to these decisions, because later in that article, Ben Slowick, he talks about the, quote, emotional value of taking the points is dramatically overstated at every turn. Really? Because, because he then later explains that, goes on to say that the, uh, Detroit being up 17 still, obviously, is not greater than the Niners' 21 unanswered run, which... Duh, 21 points is greater than 17. Any idiot can figure that out. But what the nerd doesn't take into account is the fact that that 21 unanswered was when they were down 14 points, not 17. You know, and it continues, you know, with the second fourth down. He says that being down three points and kicking that extra point or kicking that field goal to tie the game 
you know, oh, that's okay. Yeah, sure. That's that's good for the players, right? That's good for the players. You know, it's good for their me- mental capacity. But at the end of the day, it didn't matter, according to him, because he says, oh, well, that sounds a lot like retconning and conjecture to him. Well, that's exactly what you're doing when you say that Detroit being up 17 instead of 14, you know, wouldn't have mattered. Right? Isn't that the same thing? Because tying the game up on that second fourth down attempt, he, he's saying it's retconning and conjecture that Detroit would have come back and win. Well, him saying that the 21 unanswered being down 17 rather than being down 14, that's, that's the same thing. It's retconning and conjecture. You have to think about it this way. Detroit's in an opposing building, up 17, midway through the third. They dominated the first half and are still putting up points. You don't think that's going through the Niners' head? Because the Niners are going to act differently, being down three scores with 22 minutes remaining than being up two. You know? And so I I look at Dan Campbell, and yeah, I want to say, Dan, what are you doing? You know, because he has this persona of a, you know, I'm a football guy. I'm a tough guy. Let's go. We're going to go for it, right? It's exciting. Well, not when you realize that the Lions have one of the biggest analytical uh, teams in football. So how – so to me, it's when the numbers say, oh, you're going to have a better chance of winning if you go for it, doesn't mean you get it. If you go for it. How is that exciting? You know, can't – that's what I don't get, right? It's not exciting when I'm when I'm being told by numbers to go for it, to do it. Because it's not – there's no feel for the game. There's no feel for it. Now, if you want to talk about a feel and exciting and something similar, it was exciting when Belichick went for it on fourth and two in, in Indy back in 09. It was exciting when Bill Belichick was waiting out Pete Carroll, trying to right before the Malcolm go, and then he intercepts the ball. That that clock drain, that was exciting. It was exciting when the Pats had to go for two in Super Bowl Fifty One because they were down that much. It was exciting when Josh Beckett went eight strong innings with eleven strikeouts in a must-win game in Cleveland in two thousand seven. I mean, again. There are so many examples that analytics and nerds have no clue about. They will never know. And that's the problem that I have with analytics and sports. You can't quantify that competitiveness. You can't quantify that blood. You can't. Josh Beckett going eight innings in game five, being down 3-1 in the ALCS. You think you're going to see that anymore? No. Because the numbers and the analytics will tell you that by the third go-around in the order, that starting pitcher is going to get shellacked. Josh Beckett didn't. You know, I I mentioned earlier, and I I know I talked about a brief bit of this last week, and and I mentioned earlier, you know, we are at a war for the soul of our sports. 
You know, the second article that I found by Will Leash in um, the Injecture, I think the is what it's called, New York. Um, he opens with there are two different kinds of people. And he talks about how, you know, the first kind is always open to new ideas, while the second kind is turned off and says, no, I'm, I'm good with my thoughts. Thank you. You know, I'm good with what I know, you know, and I'm, I'm the latter. Because in this case, that's, that's the thing. When, when we're trying to input analytics and tell me, and the funny part was in that same paragraph, opening paragraph, in that same paragraph, he goes on to say that the second group, my group, always loses. <laughs> like, um, hello, did Detroit win on Sunday? Are they going to the Super Bowl? No, they're not. So I look at it, and the, one of the funnier parts about the article is that uh, in, he calls Dan Campbell, he's talking about like a metalhead, like, uh, you know, rah-rah guy, and then he goes on to call him a line, former linebacker, where clearly this guy, <clears throat> nerd, <laughs> didn't do uh, enough research because Dan Campbell is a former tight end. But I digress. He talks about, you know, Bill James and how what he thought about the game, how what his initial thoughts when he grew up were wrong because Bill James was Mr. Enlightenment, right? You know, he praises the Lions like he praised the Moneyball A's or the seven seconds or less Phoenix Suns. In other words, you get the ball, you run down the court, you shoot it with seven seconds or less. You're going to put up so many shot attempts that you end up going to – score a lot which is going to lead you to a victory that's what that means seven seconds or less suns and yet here's the thing what happened to those teams that's right they never won a thing they never won anything and so this and so as i'm you know the best part of the article i think will leach wrote was quote this is not to say that analytics are the be-all, end-all of the NFL any more than they are in any other sport. Really? Because that's where I beg to differ. Both these articles are talking to me as if I am a caveman, I am out of my time, it is time to, Tim, suck it up, numbers, nerds, and computers are going to be dictating Every decision you make, every life choice you make, every sports move you make, the team you root for, that's what this is – I feel like that's what this is going towards. And you know what? Can't we just have a, a, a safe haven that is sports? Can't we have a safe haven where I can just be like, I am going to relax. I am not going to worry about what computers – Geeks, nerds are telling me because it's it's not going to work because it's not exciting. Going for it on fourth down can be exciting when it's instinctual. You know, the reason why Belichick went for it on fourth down in 2009 in Indy was because he knew his defense wasn't going to stop Peyton Manning, even if they punted you know, all the way across the field and gave them uh, and won the field advantage back wasn't going to work so that's why he went for it and Belichick is one of the least analytical coaches in the NFL which I'm like thank you 
if there was one bright spot about Bill in his tenure recently, was that he was not an analytics guy. And that's what scares me about Gerard Mayo coming in at, you know, and trying to bring in all of these outside coaches. I mean, he's got Sean McVay uh, disciples. He's got Kyle Sh- interviewing Kyle Shanahan disciples. And, uh, and then, too, you know, once the draft finishes, all the scouts, all their contracts are up. So who are they going to bring in for the GM? Who are they going to bring in to fill all those roles? And what are their roles going to be? Right? Gerard Mayo is a football guy, former linebacker, played under Bill. And then he left. And then he worked at Optum. And then he came back into coaching. And he's all about this new age, this new wave. Now, I don't know if that new age, new wave means analytics. I don't. But I am concerned that it could be that. Because if I find out that the Patriots did this did this on this type of situation because the numbers said so, then you have no feel for the game. That's why I can't stand it is because these nerds, these computer programmers don't have a feel for the game. Cause I'm telling you right now, there is something that is, I don't want to say mystical because you know, that is not crazy, but just, it, it might not be the right word but it doesn't give you that feel, right? It doesn't give you that. You don't have that feel for the game. You're not watching and seeing what's going on. You know, like I said, we're already in a situation where programs are controlling our lives. This phone right here, I can't tell you how often I'm on this phone, laptop, the mic, the camera, the microphone, everything, you know, instead of going outside, enjoying the scenery, this television, right behind me instead of experiencing life going to all these different places right you know i'm trying to i'm trying to back away from that but sports was always that sports was always that safe haven you could take a step back you can get away but right now if football gets taken over there's no hope there's no hope anymore So, folks, we are in a war. We are in a war for the soul of our sports. So don't be afraid to speak up. Got a couple comments to start off. What's good, Tim? Have a great show. Long live the grid. That's right, Patrick. Long live the grid. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'll even podcast. Barry Grant Jr. Analytics is ruining the game, not just because – you set a record of fourth down aggression in the regular season. Doesn't mean you have to stay the course, adapt and adjust to the moment. Exactly. That momentum, that feel for the game is really the biggest thing you can, that you can't quantify clutchness. You can't quantify it, but you know it when you see it. If you watch sports, as long as I have, you know, those momentum swings when you see it. And I don't want, I don't want the this to to ruin football. Baseball feels like it's already long gone. Basketball is on its way there. I mentioned it with the three points, it's greater than two points. And by the way, 
just want to throw this in there about those articles before I move on. Talk about the smugness and the arrogance of those nerds talking to people like me, you know, who believe in that momentum and clutchness factor. The arrogance and the smugness of reading that, I it was it was kind of infuriating, you know. Hence, hence the reason why I'm talking about it right now. Even though I know it's Detroit and the Lions, and this is a Boston sports show, but I feel like it had to be brought up. So, going on from a playoff team to a playoff contender in the Celtics, right at uh, uh, a day or two after this the show I did last week, the Celtics were practically perfect from the field they won they beat the heat in miami 143 to 110 it was something where you're watching this going this is what the celtics can look like when they are on i am telling you they are on and then two days later in boston they played the clippers and this is what you saw the stats on the left read the stats against Miami going 51 for 80, shooting 63.7% from field goal range, field goal, shooting 22 of 40 from three point, going 19 of 20, 95% from free throws, right? Shooting 55% from three, 64% from field goal. And then they get versus the Clippers, who they blew out in LA, mind you. This time, though, on their own home court, it's it's like they didn't show up. Going 36 of 100, obviously it's a 36% field goal percentage. Going 10 of 40, so back-to-back games shooting, oh, shooting 40%, I mean 40%, shooting 43-point attempts, and this time getting only 25%, which is abysmal. And then at least only missing two free throws out of 16, going 14 to 16, shooting 87.5%. It was a different game. It was a wildly different game. And it tells me something. For this Celtics team, man, you live by the three, you die by the three. The Celtics are the highest three-point shooting attempts have the highest three-point shooting attempts in the NBA. Even with the Golden State Warriors with Klay Thompson and Steph Curry, the Celtics still shoot more threes. And I I just I didn't understand what I was watching when I was when I was watching that game. Because it, I, I'm I'm going where what happened to this team? What happened to a Celtics team? Two days ago, one game prior, were on fire. Couldn't miss. You know, and that just goes to show when you have an off day, God, you have an off day. And it wasn't even it wasn't even close. LA just ran away with it. And you know, the the one other thing I want to talk about was Tatum and his emotional state. Because he picked up his eighth technical in 43 games in that Clippers game. Now, I will admit, 
that technical a couple weeks ago when he hung on the rim because he had to control himself against Denver. He had to control himself so that way he doesn't go swinging right into the crowd. You know, that was a dumb technical. That was a really dumb technical, and that had nothing to do with everything else. But with him picking up his eighth technical, I I really was – confused because I felt like Tatum is this has this really calm demeanor. He doesn't seem he's the complete opposite of Kevin Garnett. Right? He's the complete opposite of Kevin Garnett, who is, you know, just screaming. He's vocal. He's all of this. Tatum's not. He's very subdued. Now of course when he gets out of the court, things change a little bit. But having eight technicals in 43 games, I, I looked back at all of uh, uh, the, the last two seasons because that's when he racked up his most technicals. And so far, Tatum is on a pace to have the most technical fouls in his career, not only in his career, but you know, over a span that is very quick. Because last season, for every one technical he got, he played 6.2 games. And then in 21-22, two seasons ago, he had, for every one technical that got called on him, was in every 5.8 games. Now, if you do the math, eight technicals, 43 games over eight technicals is 5.375 games he collects one technical. So right now, he's collecting more technicals than I've ever seen. And... It didn't help when they played the uh, the Pelicans a couple days later because they were eight-and-a-half-point favorites. The Celtics were. They went down 17 and found a way to come back to win 118-112. to 112. So, again, you're kind of sitting there going, well, all right, hey, at least they got the win. You know, the win is – the most important thing in the NBA. It's not like the NHL where an overtime or an overtime, you know, loss, you get, you know, one point. No, you have to win or you lose in the NBA. And so when Joe Mazzulla was asked in his post-game press conference about the sluggish start and, you know, you're coming off that bad game against the Clippers and you, you do this, you know, kind of like, what the hell, right? And Joe, Joe, talk about a guy who's, I don't think he has a, a anger issue, but he snapped, man. He snapped real quick, saying, quote, I think it's just the general narrative of, like, it's supposed to go our way all the time. There's, like, this sense of entitlement where we're supposed to play amazing basketball every quarter, every game. And that's just not how it works. End quote. Well, as much as I'd like to sit here and say that, Joe, I agree with you. I agree that you are afforded bad games, off days, off quarters. I just, I can't. Because this is Boston. You're the best team in the league. By, by far. And honestly, probably the most talented to some degree. You know, you can make a case for the Clippers and, you know, the Nuggets. But 
by far, I think he, the Celtics have the most talent. And, and it's unhealthy to expect you to play great every night. I think the reason why this question was asked and framed the way it was, was because you had that awful, awful loss against the Clippers two days prior. So you have that bad loss, fine. You know, hey, you just didn't have it. Obviously, like I showed you here, 36% field goal percentage, 25% from three. I mean, you didn't have it. That's fine. But then two days later, you fall down 17 to a Pelicans team that is just scraping to hold on to their playoff spot right now. They are eighth in the Western Conference. You know, a couple games, a couple losses, and all of a sudden they're completely out of the playoff picture. And that's an eighth is the playing game. Eighth is the playing game. That's There's no guarantee there. So if you have that, right, you're going to get asked this question. You're going to get asked this question of, well, what, you know, you have this team has high expectations. Okay, you had your bad loss. You know, we understand. We'll give it to you. But then you're playing this Pelicans team that's eighth in the Western Conference, hanging on for dear life to that spot. And you go down 17 and squeak out this victory. And then you want to snap at us for asking this simple question. You know, I again, this is Boston. If you're the Red Sox, yeah, our expectations are, you know, here, Celtics expectations, Red Sox expectations. I'm going all the way to the floor, right? So when you're up here, yeah, we expect you to play well every night. We we afford you, you know, a couple of games here and there. But when you try to stockpile them, that's where it gets a little concerning. And then, you know, like, like I said, you get murdered by the Clippers the game before, and then you go down 17 to this Pelicans team. Like, come on. What are we doing? What are we doing? You know, good thing you got that win because then question, then you'd really be pissed at the questions that the reporters would have been asking. And then, of course, um, last night, just a quick recap. The reason why I talk about how the Celtics seem to be falling back to bad habits is because they jumped out to a 81-66 uh, lead in the first half against the Pacers and coasted the whole third quarter. And you can tell because they got blown out that third quarter, 37-25. to 25. And the Pacers came right, right back and tied it up. Now, the Pacers tied it up, ultimately, with um, some down hell of a down-the-stretch type of play and Tatum coming up with two blocks in the final 30 seconds. I mean, you were able to squeak away a victory against Indiana as well. But, again, falling into some bad habits, this has been the Celtics' MO dating back to the last two years. You know, they, they jump out, they get off hot, they think that they're going to you know, run the team out of the building at halftime. And then I'm like, yeah, this team's going to give up. We're good. 
you know, they, they, they're going to, they're going to fall. That's exactly what they're going to do. But then they don't because that other team realizes, well, Hey, guess what? We still have 24 minutes left of this game. We still have plenty of possessions left in this game and we're only down, you know, 15. We're only down 18 against this Boston team who we know is going to, you know, give up the third quarter. Yeah. Let's take advantage of it. Let's go. Let's see if we can get this within two. Hell, let's see if we can get it within 10. And then they tie the game. <laughs> like, seriously? So, again, Celtics get the win. But ever since that Nuggets loss, this team hasn't looked good. This team hasn't looked right. And, yes, I know that Porzingis is, you know, back and forth trying to deal with his injuries. He did play for the first time against the Pacers last night. But there is a, I think, massive question mark, you know, that the Celtics team has to answer. And they have to – they have matured. I'll give them that much. They have matured. They do look better without Marcus Smart, without Grant Williams. Thank God they're off this team. But they still are falling into those same old traps. They are still falling into those same old habits. And I look at this and I go, yeah, there, there is something to be said about that. But while the Celtics are still have several more games before their all-star break, the Bruins are on their all-star break with David Pasternak, Jeremy Swayman, and their coach, Jim Montgomery, headed up to Toronto to play in the All-Star game, to take part in the All-Star experience. The rest of them, they're coming They're coming to Florida. They're going to Cancun. They're going to wherever, someplace warm, <laughs> right? Because, hell, you're playing on ice, you know, ice. It's cold. So they're playing someplace warm while Swayman, Montgomery, and uh, Pasternak are all up in more cold being in Toronto. But I want to talk about their first half. Okay, so the Bruins have uh, are tied for the most points in the NHL with the Canucks. If you look at the rankings, the Bruins are ahead of the Canucks, um, even though they do have the same amount of points. But there was that stretch right around late November, early December, where the Bruins just couldn't get their act together. Going into Christmas, it was it was looking like the team we expected heading into the season with the loss of Bergeron, with the loss of Krejci, Bertuzzi, Orlov, Hathaway, Hall, um, Bellino. That, that team – it looked like we lost all those players. But now, now they rebounded real hard because ever since the Christmas break, the Bees are 12-2-3, which I love. It. Now, I talked about this. Um, if you follow me on Instagram, which as you can see, oh, oh, right there, right there, there it is. Right below at Boston Sports Summit, I talk, I went live. I talked about how they blew the game against the Hurricanes because 
They were down 2 nothing, stormed back, tied it up, and only for Lindholm to skate up instead of get back, which left um, the, uh, the, the Hurricanes guy wide open, and he fired it. And I don't know why it didn't – if Almark was too late to react or if he just didn't get down fast enough, whatever the case may have been, squeaked under – his left shin pad and those shin pads are big. Like it wasn't, it got nicked, but it still had enough momentum to carry it through to the goal. So, and that was with two and a half minutes remaining in the game. So yeah, it was a bad, in my opinion, a very bad loss and lost that the game should have at least gone to overtime. And if you lose an overtime, if you lose in a shootout, so be it. But that, that They should have gotten at least one point for that. Unfortunately, Lindholm was out of position, and sometimes these guys on the blue line do that. You know, And I'm not trying to absolve them by saying that. I'm trying to let you know that they, the Bruins, that's how they lost to the Panthers You know, last in the uh, first round of the playoffs last year. Had the best record in the NHL, and then they lost to the Panthers – because their defense, okay, yeah, sure, Elmark was hard. The defense, you know, had some injuries. Lenholm was dealing with his foot. But, again, it's all a mind game. If you know you're dealing with a foot, why are you overskating? Why aren't you staying as far back as you possibly can? That's where I have an issue with. You know, again, if, um, if Lenholm is dealing with a foot, right, and not now, but I'm going back to the playoffs, if he's dealing with a foot, the last thing I would expect for him to do is be be all the way down deep in the offensive zone because he's dealing with a foot issue, and then he has to turn and get all the way back. God forbid there's a breakaway. Well, nope, didn't happen. And that's one of the reasons, many reasons, why – the uh, Bruins lost to the Panthers last season, but I didn't like I didn't like that game. I was worried after that game, but then they followed it up with a gutsy win against the Ottawa Senators and Marshawn scoring the overtime winner, surpassing Ray Bork. I want to get to that in just a minute because then the Bruins followed it up with a absolute shellacking of the Philadelphia Flyers on Saturday. Yeah, absolute shellacking. 6-2 to two in Philly against a team at the time that held the number two spot in the Metro division. Now they're third in the Metro, one point behind, or excuse me, five points behind the Canes. So going into that game Saturday, uh, Philly – held the second spot in the Metro division, and now is down to third. They're a good team, and you just hammered them. Absolutely hammered them. And not for nothing, love to see it. Absolutely love to see it because it's friggin' Philly. It's friggin' Philly. No one likes Philly. Hell, Philly fans threw snowballs at Santa Claus. And I will still bring that up. Yes, Philly fans, 
I will still bring that up, even though it happened in the late 70s, because it's Santa Claus. Why are you throwing snowballs at Santa Claus? There's no reports of him wearing a Giants jersey during the game. So, come on. Come on, Philly fans. Be better. But we know you know. <laughs> at, least you, at least you love and have knowledge of your sports. I'll give you that. Um, so, yeah. So, great to see, you know, you blow, you blow the game against – you blow the game against the Carolina Hurricanes. You have a gutsy performance against Ottawa. And you blew that lead, but then you, you know, won it overtime. And then you annihilated the Flyers in the final game before your break, which I love it. You know what? I'll take that. Now, one of the things that does scare me is that this team, the Bruins, are very tight against the cap. They are very tight against the cap and I don't know if they're going to have enough to go after and trade for a top piece like Elias Lindholm like Noah Anathan because while these guys are you know top pieces and are would be great gets you have to make sure that you have enough cap room to do that and some of the trade pieces that I keep seeing float around are Trent Frederick, who is making $2.3 million. Jake DeBrus, well, actually, I haven't seen Jake DeBrus. He sh- his name should be mentioned. Um, but he's at a cool $4 million. Um, who else was M- Matthew Patra, who's on an entry-level contract, 19 years old. Guess how much he's making. Eight hundred seventy thousand for the next three seasons. So even with even with trading those three guys straight up for a true number one center, for a thumper, a hard hitter who can also kill off the penalty defenseman. I don't think you know we're gonna. You can't just trade your next three firsts because you don't have enough cap room. You have to sell off pieces. And, yes, next season, 2025 NHL draft, you finally have a first-round pick, which would be great, except I know that Trader Don is going to try to make a move. And I hope, and I hope he does, and I hope he finds the right move without having to give up a first or a second in 2026, because you don't have a second in 2025. And so that's that's the kind of worry that that I'm concerned with. And 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 when the trade deadline approaches, I will really have a, a solid in-depth piece on this because I really want to hammer home. You know, what is important for this team? Who is out there to get? And if there are any pieces, the two guys that I think we should get rid of, you're going to think I'm crazy, but is DeBrusque and Almack. I'll touch more on that when the trade deadline approaches um, on in early March. So, but 
the big thing that I do want to talk about from bot from the Bruins is the fact that the little ball of hate just surpassed Ray Bork for leading goal scorers with 396. Brad Marchand now holds the fifth, solely holds fifth all time in Boston Bruins history behind Johnny Busick, Esposito, Patrice Bergeron, and Rick Middleton. He's only six away from tying Middleton and could easily help. He could easily get third by the end of the year. I, I might be pushing it on that one, but he could, he'll definitely pass Rick Middleton before this season is up. So I just want to say that he it has been unbelievable. He really has. I mean, Brad Marchand is a guy that, honestly, I never thought he would have amounted to this. He would have amounted to this. The little ball of hate, the rat, amounted to being fifth all time on Bruins goal scores. And hell, if he plays next season and still is putting up numbers without Bergeron by his side, he could easily be second behind Johnny Busick. Like, how unbelievable of a feat is that? This guy, Brad Martian, who, again, even coming into this season, knowing that he was the team captain, we're all sitting here going like, really? Martian? Captain? I mean, I get it. He's the longest tenured guy, but you're not giving it to McAvoy? Wouldn't McAvoy be the better choice from a personality standpoint, from a standpoint where he doesn't have history <laughs> like Brad Marchand, Slewfoot's guys, call, get called the little ball of hate, has been voted the most punchable face in the NHL, has licked guys in playoffs, which that was absolutely hilarious, him licking the faces of opponents, and everyone's calling him disgusting, this, that, and the other, which, again, it's – wildly unclean but you can tell when he licked their face it got underneath their skin so bad and they were just like what the flying bleep this bleep that and i'll tell you it worked it absolutely worked and then of course two games into it they're like okay stop doing that we're outlawing it but if he doesn't mind Hell, it ain't my tongue. I sure as shit ain't doing that. But it ain't my tongue, so I don't care. And if it's getting under their skin, hey, all's fair in love and war, right? Well, not love, but <laughs> you know what I mean. You know, all's fair when it comes to uh, hockey, when it comes to playoff hockey, baby. But that guy was chosen to be the captain of one of the most historic franchises in the NHL. And not Charlie McAvoy, who is a very different personality from Brad Marchand. So even going into this season, I, I I was thinking to myself, you know, like, really? Okay. I mean, can he can this man change his reputation? I don't believe he could, but we'll see. And not for nothing, without Bergeron, without Krejci, with the C on his chest, 
The dude has just been in a, a, a sight for sore eyes. I mean, I can't believe it. He's putting up numbers that he, you wouldn't think that he would have. You wouldn't think it. And so the fact that he's got – he's literally four games away from hitting 1,000 regular season games, which is astounding in and of itself. Congratulations, Brad, because I know you're going to do it. Um, even he himself has said, I never thought my career would come this far and some of the things that have gone on would uh, would have happened. Absolutely. After this guy set the Bruins – rookie playoff goal record in 2011 when the Bruins last won the cup, beating the Canucks, he scored 11 goals and set the Bruins playoff rookie record. I still didn't think that this kid would amass this much. This third round draft pick, 71st overall in the 2006 NHL draft, has done this. And all I can say to that is, Brad, thank you, man. Thank you. You know, you have been probably one of the most underrated players this this generation has, has seen because he was hiding behind Zdeno O'Chara. He was hiding behind Patrice Bergeron. He was hiding behind David Pasternak, David Krejci, Milan Lucic, uh, Nathan Horton, Tyler Sagan. And, and again, not to say that people didn't know his name. No, everyone knew his name. Everyone, the little ball of hate. We all know it. To take everything into perspective and to see him now wear that C and to see him pass Ray Bork, who is just amazing in and of itself, um, I think is it's it's unbelievable. It's it's really an amazing feat that this this guy has done all that he has in the NHL over his career. And I know some articles have talked about the possible Hall of Fame career. I, you know, I would love it. I think that would be awesome. I think if you're going to bring in guys from this Bruins era, I think really the three guys are Chara, Bergeron, Mashan. You know, let's Pasternak finish his career out. Krejci, I thought he was a great playoff performer. Again, a clutch playoff performer again to all you nerds yeah you, you haven't gotten to hockey yet um but i don't think Krejci is a you know hockey hall of famer uh nhl hall of famer yeah i think it's a hockey hall of fame so he's unbelievable player don't get me wrong i, I love david Krejci. i just don't think that he's a he has what it takes to be in the hockey hall of fame so overall though congrats to marshan and, you know, it's it's something to it's something to be said. You know, it's something that needs to be brought up because, you know, I, I am very appreciative of, you know, Brad, what he's done for this team and not for nothing. All the memories that he's given us, you know, as Bruins fans. So it's been great. Now, lastly, you know, I'm going to touch on the Red Sox right now, obviously. There's, there's not much to talk about because it's not like they're out there just pissing away money. No, they don't do that. This is the Fenway Sports Group. Remember, they did that when they first got here. Now they're like telling all the fans, F you, and you're still going to come to our, bar, our ballpark no matter how much it costs, no matter how much the beer prices are. 
no matter how much the sausage, peppers, and onions, the hot dogs, the chicken fingers, all of that cost, it's going to be the highest in the league. And guess what? You're still going to show up. The problem is, it's not Red Sox fans that are showing up. It's New Yorkers. It's, you know, Houston. It's, um, you know, Philly. L.A., the Dodgers. You know, it's all the other teams. Toronto. All the other teams are coming in to, to see Fenway Park and their team annihilate the Red Sox. They'll pay the exorbitant prices. That's what they're going to do. But before I continue with the FSG even more, I, I saw this comment. So AJ Przinsky has a podcast called Foul Territory. And he's on with Ken Rosenthal. And A.J. Pruszynski played with the Sox for a year. And he asked Ken. Actually, couldn't even finish asking Ken. Are the Red Sox even trying? And as soon as he's finished saying trying, Ken, and he, A.J. was going to go on a little bit of a rant to try to explain himself what he means by not trying. No, no, no. Ken didn't even have to wait. He just goes, no. A national baseball writer, without skipping a beat, says, no, the Red Sox aren't even trying. And he goes on to explain that, well, let's look at it. Let's look at what the Sox have done, right? They have done nothing. Yeah, they signed Lucas Giolito. They scooped up a couple of guys, again, bargain, basement hunting, waivers, all that stuff. I, they just made a waiver claim earlier today um, for a nobody, and they dropped a nobody from their 40-man roster in order to make rum. Like, two guys I've never heard of. So, you know, sorry to all the baseball guys who or baseball nerds who are just kind of like, you know, you're talking about the Red Sox. You need to know who these guys are. All the Red Sox fans, sorry. I didn't know, you know, this guy, the guy they dropped, DFA'd, DFA'd on the 40-man roster. Never heard of him before in my life. Uh, the guy they picked up off waivers, never heard before. Sorry, but that's just, just the case. Um, so he goes on to explain – that Ken Rosenthal, national baseball writer, who's got the inside on all things baseball, goes on to explain that Jordan Montgomery, one of the top pitchers, top three pitchers that is still on the free agent market, and I mean top three from the beginning, he's still on the free agent market. He lives in Boston. He's working out in Boston, and his wife is doing a residency in Boston. And yet, nothing, absolutely nothing from the Red Sox even calling his agent just to get a ballpark of what he, you know, is looking for. Zero. Zilch. Nada. The guy's living in Boston, doing everything in Boston. And yet, these jackasses are like, eh, whatever. Good for him. Glad he's enjoying the city. We'll see him uh, in another uniform soon. I mean, it really 
is truly inexplicable how they're running things. It really is. Jared Carabas went uh, tweeted out earlier today. November 2nd, 2023. Red Sox vow to go, quote, full throttle. January 19th, 2024. Red Sox tell fans they're lowering payroll. Both things are true. January 31st, earlier today. Fenway Sports Group, part of a $3 billion investment group to partner with the PGA Tour. Really? $3 billion to to partner with the PGA Tour. Huh. So that $300 million I talked about Robert Kraft saving over those 10 years and how it went to that giant uh, lighthouse and the giant scoreboard, how you can see downtown Providence and downtown Boston from the lighthouse. Now I think I know why that ticket prices are through the roof. Beer prices through the roof. Highest in baseball. Ticket prices highest in baseball. Hot dog, food, highest in baseball. Am I being a little hyperbolic? Sure. But again, still top five. Um, they're, they're taking in all that money, lowering payroll, just to invest Three or be the lead in the investment of the PGA Tour. The three billion dollars. I guarantee you, they have the majority share because that's what it's been talked about. It's been talked about that they are the majority in that uh, investment group, which just goes to show you what. If they haven't lost your trust by now, what more do they need to show you? What more do they need to show you for you to finally say to the Red Sox organization, not Alex Cora, not the players, but to the organization, the front office, the brass, the ownership, Fenway Sports Group, to tell them to F off. Sorry, but it needs to be said. You know, these these guys have done a lot for this team. And I get it. I loved every World Series championship and every time we competed for World Series championships. I did. You know, but they lost my trust. The day they traded Mookie Betts. Now again, are they gonna? Was he gonna stay? Was he gonna leave? I don't know. I don't know. You know, if they actually gave him a real number, was he gonna stay for it? Hindsight being twenty twenty, Mookie says he would have. You know, again, this is years later. He says he would have. But I don't know. And so that was the day. And you can even go back to John Lester. You know, I was so disheartened by the Lester negotiation. Because of how much they undersold him. Because of how much 
he meant to this team and this organization. They treated him like a scrub. And it was just asinine. And of course, you treat Lester like that. You get rid of Mookie Betts because you, you don't, he's a generational talent. And you're like, yeah, no, nothing. And then you do that to Xander Bogarts. Now, of course, Xander Bogarts, yeah, he's probably on you know the downward trend of his career. But he admitted, he talked about how he wants to stay and would take a hometown discount to some extent. You just so much, you undershot him so much that of course he had to go and take a payday with the Padres. And I'm glad he did. I'm glad he got his money. And all the Red Sox fans out there thinking that the Padres money is exactly what it would have taken for him to stay. You're just as ignorant because it wasn't. He wanted, you know, little money. Xander Bogats wanted the hometown discount to stay wearing a Red Sox uniform for the rest of his career. And you just pissed that away. So how can they regain my trust? That was the question that I asked at the start of the show. How can they regain my trust? Well, it's going to start by signing Jordan Montgomery. And I, even if they sign Jordan Montgomery, there's no way on God's green earth you could ever convince me that this offseason was a success, even if they get Montgomery. Now, if they got Snell and Montgomery, then we can start talking. Still wouldn't clarify, classify it as success, but we can start talking. And that's... But it, it's it, it's going to take years because what's the old adage? It takes years to build up trust. Or it takes years to, yeah, build up trust. And all it takes is a split second for people to lose that trust in, in you. You know, maybe not exactly those words, but you know what I'm saying. And it's going to take a long time. I, I understand they want to build through the farm system. I get it. But this team sucks. This team is garbage. And they know it. Tyler O'Neill, really? That's the guy you want to tout to be like, oh, look, we got Tyler O'Neill and Lucas Giolito. And Trevor Story's coming back. Yay. I hate this. Like, this is what the Red Sox have done the last four years. They have treated every injury, every guy that's come back from injury after the trade deadline as a trade in and of itself. They're like, well, we're getting Trevor Story back. Well, we're getting Xander Bogats back. Well, we're doing this, that. We're getting this, that, and the other back from injury. We're getting Chris Sale back from injury. So that's a trade. That There we go. See, no problem. But that's the pro- that is a problem in and of itself because – you, you don't understand. You're not helping your cause. You're basically becoming net even. You're not improving your team. You're also, you might be slightly weakening your team, but at the end of the day, it's more of a net neutral to get a guy back from injury after the trade deadline. It's going to take a long time for the Fenway Sports Group and John Henry to rebuild my trust and even if the Red Sox go on to have a you know playoff season this season 
you know, that doesn't mean all is forgiven. You know, unfortunately, I need the Red Sox to finish last again because if they finish last, then maybe next offseason they'll realize, crap, we actually have to spend money in order to win. Versus if they do make the playoffs this year, then John Henry and Fenway Sports Group and Tom Warner and Sam Kennedy are going to feel validated. And if they feel validated, then it's over. It really is over if those guys feel validated because they made the playoffs. You know, 2021, they felt validated, even though the players were kind of like, you didn't help us at all. And so now we have to do this. So that that 2021 playoff run they had was more of a screw you to ownership than it was anything else. And that's what worries me. That's what bothers me, that I actually have to cheer for the Red Sox to finish last. Call me crazy, but the more they finish last, the more I hope that either John Henry dies and they he actually whoever gets the team or is the owner of the of the Fenway Sports Group will actually want to invest in the Red Sox, or um, or that the more we lose, the more they'll realize, yeah, we have to spend money. So let's actually spend money on elite players. They have the opportunity this offseason, and. They basically laughed in our face. They laughed in the faces of Red Sox fans, of Red Sox nation, thinking that they have fielded a playoff, a championship, not a playoff, a championship caliber team. And they still want to go young and they don't want to pay anybody. So I don't know what to tell you. The Red Sox feel like a lost cause. Um, and unfortunately, you know, if if we want them to spend, then we got to cheer on them losing. So tell me what you guys think. You can hit me up on any of the platforms below at Boston Sports Summit on Instagram, at Boss, B-O-S, Sports Summit on Twitter. Yeah, I'm Boston Sports Summit on YouTube. You can find all these clips and links. And I'm also on the YouTube, other side, <laughs> reverse, YouTube's uh, Grid Network. Okay, so you can find me in all those places. Please like, share, subscribe. I want to thank you guys for watching the very the third episode of the Boston Sports Summit. I am your host, Tim Barnard, where, like I said, I'm just a Boston guy who is talking about all the teams that he loves. So thank you guys for watching. Thank you to the Grid Network for hosting this show. I'm really excited. We are going to hit the top very soon. So like, share, subscribe, follow, share, subscribe. Um, thank you again for listening. And I'm always here. So, you know, if you agree or disagree with any of my comments, I look forward to discussing it with you. Have a great rest of your night. Thank you.